Hello, everyone, and welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 136, and we're reviewing Princess Mononoke. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode. This is a movie, a Studio Ghibli film, that I've been wanting to watch for a really, really, really long time. And finally, we've made it happen. <laughs> so this is technically, technically the first Ghibli film that I've watched. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, but because I specifically remember seeing a clip of this in a history of animation class that I took in college. Um, oh, wait, you mean it's of the Studio Ghibli films. This is the first one you ever yeah. watched back in the day. I thought you meant like right now, this is technically the first <laughs> no, one no, you ever no, watched. Because I'm like, we've done other reviews no, yeah, of yeah, Studio of Ghibli we, films. We've done, like, My Neighbor Totoro was the proper Ghibli, first proper Ghibli film I watched, mm -hmm. um, which we reviewed and then Spirited Away as well, which was, we did that a couple months ago. But yeah, I guess technically Princess Mononoke was the first even though it was, a, it was a clip, and it was also the ending of the movie <laughs> that our or the professor of the class wanted to show us for whatever reason. Cause, so they just spoiled it for you? Yeah. I mean, it was like a short unit on anime and Japanese animation, and she was like, here's a clip of Princess Mononoke, and it's the ending, but I encourage you to watch the film in its entirety if you ever have a chance. And I was like, well, you kind of spoiled it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah... I do remember this fondly um, and seeing the ending play out this time around, um, it did trigger some memories of what happened. I think the first Studio Ghibli film I ever watched was Kiki's Delivery Service when I was a kid because I don't remember what channel would play it, but it would always be on TV every I don't know, couple of weeks or every month or something like that because I felt like me and my sisters watched it pretty often. Um, so yeah, that was my first, but I don't really remember much about it. Um, so I think that's that's when we're going to have to watch eventually. But yeah, Princess Mononoke, I've been wanting to watch for a long time. There's two in particular, this one and then Howl's Moving Castle. Because I've seen, mm. again, Kiki's Delivery Service. Um, I saw Spirited Away many, many times growing up. But there was something about these two movies that had me really intrigued. And for some reason, I just haven't jumped on them. So it was nice to finally be able to check off Princess Mononoke from my list. I will say... Uh, we'll get into our thoughts um, after the synopsis, but this feels like a very different Ghibli movie. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I always expect it to be like fantastical and really geared towards children and st the visual delight. Um, that's still the case here, but I think it's a, a more mature take on a story. Well, it's one that's still compelling. Um, and I was just reading a, a bit about this movie and it looks like Miyazaki had intended this to be his final film before he retired. Oh. But with the the success of the film it led him to continue doing films and the one he did I think right after this was actually Spirited Away. Um, oh, I don't know so, why I thought Spirited Away came before this, but this came out in 97. Yeah. And so just imagine if like Miyazaki had stopped and then Spirited Away would have never gotten the Oscar win. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. For best was the animated film, so yeah, I, I think there there are a couple of things that we have to be thankful for with Princess Mononoke. Uh, but I guess before we jump into all of that, are there any updates outside of outside of watching this movie? There? I think you have one. You yeah. recently finished an anime that I was excited for you to watch. Yes, <laughs> but now I need to know your actual <laughs> thoughts now that you've seen it. Uh, yeah, that anime in question is. I always get the name of this mixed up. More than a married couple, but not lovers. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so and to preface this, we'll talk about it, but we won't give any spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen this anime. So don't worry. We'll, we'll talk like high level. So I think I've mentioned in previous episodes that when it comes to anime rom-com, a lot of them are like hit or miss for me. Um, and I think a majority don't appeal just because it's a lot of like waiting and seeing or it takes forever for the plot to move forward. Uh, I think that was the case with uh, The Angel Next Door Spoils Me Rotten um, from this season. But you know, hearing you talk about More Than a Married Couple but Not Lovers in the past, it got me intrigued. And so I did pick it up um, after it, it had wrapped up in fall. Um, but I put it on the back burner for a bit just because we were working on seasonals. But I 
finally got around to finishing the series, and I will say it's it's a, a notch better than the rom-com that I've watched so far. Oh, <laughs> well, that's good. That's better than a notch worse. <laughs> no, yeah, because it definitely feels spicier, especially with uh, uh, Akati, right, is yeah. the main female lead. And I guess for those who aren't familiar with the series, it's basically these high school students are put into a, a marriage practical where they are paired up and have a, a simulated relationship as a married couple. And they're, you know, they, they put high school students in apartments together and then they get however many points uh, for every time they, they show love to each other or act as a married couple. And so... Akari, who is like a, a gyaru type, is paired up with, oh, I'm already blanking on Jiro. this. Jiro. <laughs> yeah, Jiro, <laughs> thank you. Who is more of like an otaku type, um, I guess like a cool otaku type though. Uh, and, you know, it's very different from each other and they have their respective um, uh, people that they're chasing after. But, of course, some sort of feelings grow between them. And you kept saying like this anime is almost like a harem with an even or with a level playing field. Yeah, and that's what I really like about it. I am not usually a harem person because when I dive into romance, I want to know what the end game is. I want to know like best girl or best boy is gonna win. Um, and I'm not there to kind of see like who's gonna end up being best boy or best girl. I want to know like what the the journey is for the relationship of the two characters that will eventually be together. So that's why I prefer pretty straightforward romance versus um, the gray areas of harem. However, this one is interesting because I think that there is a clear best girl. At least my best girl is Akati. Um, but not to like spoil the ending or anything, but it's an uh, it's obviously an unfinished anime. I don't know if the manga is still ongoing or not, but they uh, they haven't given us a conclusion. But throughout the story, again, there is a an even playing field. So it it's technically falling under a harem, but in a way, like it's playing out in a way that makes it interesting because it could go either way. Like I don't know, just at any moment it could go either way. Um, and both girls that are part of this harem I think have an equally fair shot because sometimes you watch harems and you're like it's clear who's going to win it's just a harem for harem's sake so then it's like why even waste my time going through the harem when I know who's going to be the clear winner but here I think despite there being like in my opinion one best girl I still don't know which way the story could end however it's going to end and I get that like there's still that that sort of tension that comes between the the, t- the competing love interests in, in this series that's typical in harem and, and maybe other rom-coms. Uh, but here, it, I, like I said before, it's spicier than shit like Aharen or, like I said before, Angel Next Door. Uh, but part of it... <laughs> see, the thing is, like, as much as like you have Akari... And Shiori, I think it was like the other, um, the other female yeah. lead, who are kind of competing for Jiro's uh, affections. I thought none of them <laughs> were deserving of each other. Uh oh, because <laughs> uh, you know, they're they're each doing what they can to um, to grow their feelings or grow the other's feelings towards them. Um, even though like Jiro is always stuck between a, a rock and a hard place and he doesn't know what to do in, in these situations. Uh, and then, you know, it, it leaves Akari feeling confused sometimes and kind of flustered because like she's also grappling with her own feelings with between him and whatever that blonde guy's name was. Nami. Yeah, and then you have Shiori who, uh, I know I'm kind of going to light spoilers here, but, you know, um, she knew that Jiro had a thing for her when they were younger um, that she kind of just let pass. But now it's like she wants to rekindle that for whatever reason. And the whole time I'm watching all of these things unfold, again, I'm thinking like you're, you, each of you is just stringing the other person along. <laughs> and in, in that sense, I don't think any of you are deserving <laughs> of each other. But, you know, I... I I think you were and a couple of our friends were asking like whose team am I on? 
when it comes to like Team Shiori or Team Akari. I always have to default to loving how I see opposites attract anywhere. So in this case, I would be probably at the, the lowest tier of, of Team Akari. Let's go. So, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. um, but all that aside, it was still an enjoyable anime to watch. I'm kind of curious to see how the marriage practical continues. And again, it's it's very open-ended now, like you said, with where Jiro's true feelings lie between the two love interests. But um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see where the series goes from there because yeah, everything right now is just so, I guess, ambiguous when it comes to everyone's feelings, especially like Jiro's and Akari's and Shiori's. Interestingly, at least according to Mal, this is not listed as an ecchi. I don't think it goes quite that far. I think it's more like fan service heavy, um, especially with any scenes that have Akati in it. So I, I wouldn't call it a straight up ecchi. For anyone who's you know maybe not as into ecchi anime, it's not that level, but it definitely has a fair amount of fan service almost every single episode. Yeah, so that's where the spice comes in. And it's not in your face. It wasn't like there every episode, but... Almost every episode. (laughs) I guess, yeah, the ones that did, (laughs) I'll say it was like quote-unquote tasteful in that like they were comedic enough to to be included rather than be like an ew kind of moment. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you watched it and that... You enjoyed it on some level. <laughs> the OP is shit, though. I will say that. I yeah. hated listening to that. <laughs> it wasn't my my favorite either, but the ED. The ED fucking slaps. is definite vibe, so I'll, I'll give it that. Well, moving on from a, uh, a very fan service heavy anime to one that has no fan service but does have violence, which I can't wait to talk about. I was very surprised by that. Let's move on to Princess Mononoke. All right, Strictly fam. Save the Kodama for your mama because we are about to dive into our synopsis and discussion for Princess Mononoke, a 1997 Japanese animated epic historical fantasy film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki and animated by Studio Ghibli. Princess Mononoke follows tribal prince Ash Tucker as he embarks on his own National Geographic documentary to find a cure for a really bad case of rotten baconator that transforms his arm into an army. But um, after a monk with bad intentions suggests he pay a visit to the oh dear god, Ash Tucker's travels lead him to an iron town overseen by its iron maiden, Lady Eboshi, who seeks to protect her capitalist means of production from the exploits of a ferocious female of the forest with feral phytos who fit her into their fold, call her prances with wolves. After getting entangled in one of the town's scuffles with the eponymous princess, Ash Tucker earns Prances with Wolves' favor and earns a one-way ticket to visit the Oh Dear God, What Is That Thing? and heal his rotten Baconator wounds. But the forest's own Baconated boars decide to retaliate against the Iron Town for their misdeeds, while Lady Eboshi in turn seeks to kappa the detate out of the Oh Dear God's immortal head in exchange for the Emperor's protection. All woodland hell breaks loose as the emperor attacks the town, the town attacks the boars, and the boar's head Hancho inadvertently leads Lady Eboshi to make some deer heads roll. The deer god in headless lights then activates the rural rumbling across the region and destroys nearly everything in its path. So Ash Tucker encourages Prances with Wolves to let bygones be bygones with Lady Eboshi as they retrieve the godhead to return the area back to its original forest fervor. Ash Tucker then becomes completely healed of his rotten Baconator curse and stays behind to help Lady Eboshi rebuild Iron Town to its former but reformed glory, while Prances with Wolves decides to return to her unnatural habitat and protect her forested world from devastation, whilst all parties strive to unite all beings within their nation. So I guess in the end, looks like everything turned out just monon okay. Nice. Um, actually I want to clarify with the title of the film Princess Mononoke I don't think they ever refer to Tusan who is the the female uh, protagonist or quote unquote protagonist Uh, they never refer to her as that although the word Mononoke means vengeful spirit 
I thought they do call her that like briefly in the beginning before he before Ashitaka learns what her real name is. Hmm. I could be wrong. Maybe though. like like as a sort of pejorative towards. Yeah, her. like like basically saying like before he understands like who she really is. I think in the very beginning, maybe in the Iron Town, they're like talking about the Princess Mononoke or something like that. Mm. I don't know. I can't remember now. I'm like trying to like Mononoke Hime. Yeah, I think they might have. Yeah, maybe they did mention it, but. At least Ashitaka always refers to her as San. As San. When he learns her real name, yeah, that's when, when he starts calling her that. And for anyone who's curious, we did watch this movie subbed instead of dubbed, only because we don't have any particular connections with the, the dub, so we decided to watch it subbed. And, of course, as with all our movie reviews, we're going to do more of an open discussion about the film um, versus a like chronological or episodic type of discussion that we normally do just because it's easier with films um i think there there were less like clear acts in this film so we're going to talk broadly about it um but with all that said i think you have a couple of fun facts you want to share about the movie right yeah um particularly i guess since we're talking about uh san um uh, i noted that at least for me she was kind of similar to to tarzan Tarzan. Oh, yeah, I guess they were kind of raised by wild animals, and they sort of embrace the ideologies of their guardians. Uh, But to connect this to the Star Wars realm, I read up on some trivia that said that the creative teams of Star Wars: The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, the animated TV series for the Star Wars franchise, cited Sun as an inspiration for Ahsoka Tano. Um, there are quite a few similarities between the two characters, such as their spiritual con- connection to nature and life, as well as their fighting and movement style, which I can kind of see. Um, I think Ahsoka is of the Togruta species in Star Wars, and they have similar like facial features and designs to San or to Princess Mononoke. Every time... I hear someone say Ahsoka. My brain just immediately thinks Hisoka. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just the weeb in me. I'm just like, Hisoka? No. <laughs> Different. And then I also saw another piece of trivia. This is just more of a broad trivia that you might find interesting is that many people speculate that various things featured in the Nintendo game, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, were greatly inspired by this film. Yeah, I, I agree. The the Kodama and um, Koroks right. are like... To me, very, very similar. They have like the same vibes, those forest creature vibes. Um, they're small and cute, and they just kind of pop up at random places. Yeah, I could see that being and the even, case. And uh, even, I think, the first ten minutes of the game, uh, Link's tunic very closely resembles the outfit that Ashitaka wears. Oh. Right, because they're both like that blue getup. Or like like similar blue color palette. Um, I'm also reading here, Ashitaka has a sword and also uses the bow and arrow as his main weapon, which are also the weapons Link uses in-game. Although he's always used the yeah, sword and say. the bow and arrow, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, Ashitaka does have that blue outfit. Um, I could see that. Yeah, I, I okay, I could I could see that. To me, it's a little bit of a stretch because Link's outfit in Breath of the Wild has obvious... Hillian inspired patterns on it, but yeah, they do look pretty similar. <laughs> I mean, the game is also called Breath of the Wild. Yeah. So you could connect that to the overarching nature aspect of this film and how they might have taken inspiration from that. Yeah, I could see it. Also, I mean, a lot of people say there's some similarities between Breath of the Wild and Shadow of the Colossus. Um, I can see that too. Like it has kind of the, the like the the open world feel yeah. of it, not so much like the actual monsters. I mean, some of the bosses are, are on the bigger side, sure, but more the open world field between Shadow of the Colossus and Breath of the Wild are very similar. Yeah, they both have horses. Although I think Apana has always been a horse in the Legend of Zelda. Yeah, for a long lore, time, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so to really kick things off, what were your high level thoughts or initial takeaways about Princess Mononoke? having properly watched it for the first time, even though you got spoilers many years ago. Yeah, again, I was expecting this to be another typical Ghibli film that was going to be like a a whimsical fantasy. But as we were watching maybe the first 30 minutes, 
I, I got to see what kind of film this really was. And in my notes, I wrote kid-friendly brutality. Because <laughs> <laughs> like the very first scene, you see Ashitaka attacking the possessed boar god, I think. And you know, as soon as they uh, take him down, he, I think he utters some sort of threat, right? And then the body just starts to decompose in front of the Amishi people's eyes. And that just freaked me out so much because I was like, I, I wouldn't expect this in in a Ghibli film, but it's it's laid out right there. Yeah, I had similar initial thoughts too. I'm like, this is this could be a kid's film in the sense that we kind of relate most of Studio Ghibli's films as kid's films, but I really don't think it is. And it is technically rated PG-13, according to Mal. Um, but the violence took me by surprise. Mm -hmm. And I think... I think the reason it took me by surprise and the whole vibe of this movie having a more mature feel is because it's still in that same Studio Ghibli animation style. It has, you know, very whimsical feels to it, especially with the music. Um, everything is just soft and light, even with the heavier themes of this movie. And then suddenly just like heads go flying and arms go flying. And to me, it seemed almost kind of out of place um, and kept throwing me off when I saw those moments of violence because it's like softened violence. Because if you think mm -hmm. about most violence in anime, like they they pretty they don't focus on it, but it is somewhat emphasized. Like there's like an oomph to the violence, right? Like when someone gets their head chopped off, you, there's like an oomph to that. Like there's a yeah. a moment that really captures the audience's attention that this bit of violence happened. Here it's almost like arms and heads were flying, but like it just felt so soft and light. Like it just right. like things just kept happening, and like like it was so nonchalant. And I think that's why the violence, while it wasn't grotesque and like while it's fine that it's in there, it felt out of place to me. Does that make sense? Like I'm trying to to describe the lightness behind the violence in a Studio Ghibli film. No, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even though it still felt nonchalant, I think the first time we see someone's arm get sliced off is again within the first half hour. And I think it's by Ashitaka's possessed arm. And yeah, when he's like firing bows and arrows at the bandits or something. Or yeah. Bo bows and arrows. He's firing arrows at the uh, the bandits. Yeah, who are just ravaging a nearby town as Ashitaka is traveling towards the Iron Town. Um, I guess it works twofold for this film. Like, one, it being a Ghibli movie, you don't want it to be like a, a, a gore or a splatter fest. And then two, I think it toning down all of that brutality or that visceral aesthetic kind of allows you as a viewer to just focus more on the story because violence still plays a big role in Princess Mononoke, especially with this clash between uh, man and nature. But I don't think for, for, for this movie's purposes, it didn't need to be like Game of Thrones level or Walking Dead level of gore and violence. Yeah, I agree. I think the violence that we see during a lot of the big battles, especially the the climactic battle at the end, like all that violence fits with the story. But yeah, when I, when we saw heads rolling and arms flying off, it just, I don't know, something about that, I wouldn't say crosses the line because it's not like it's the worst violence we've ever seen in anime. There's far worse out there. There's just something about those particular moments that felt out of place but either way it's not like the violence had no point at all going back to the part with the bandits towards the beginning it's to show that ashtaka's curse is giving him superhuman strength so there was a reason for it even if the way they portrayed that violence seemed a bit odd or out of place but of course with this being a ghibli film everything else visuals wise is in place with you know the the impressive natural vistas and landscapes that are kind of highlighting the serenity of nature, which of course is the point of this whole movie, um, this sort of balance or imbalance, uh, a give and take between man and nature. Yeah, the whole theme behind this story is human civilization versus nature and trying to find, like you said, the balance between them um, and Ashitaka's ultimate desire of wanting to achieve peace between both. Um, I think his character is really interesting to me because he's kind of the only one or one of the very few who is trying to find 
that bit of peace between them and, and seeks that that um, that harmony between them. Like they can they can coexist. They can both be there at the same time if they learn to respect each other um, and not cross the boundaries for one versus the other. In that sense, Ashitaka is a very fascinating character. I guess you could consider him as the protagonist of or the proper protagonist of the film, um, where he is this sort of compromiser between the team human and team nature. Um, but I think it's interesting because at the beginning of the film, he's the one who is afflicted by this curse that nature has placed upon him. Um, but he doesn't seem to act vengeful at all towards nature because of his his predicament. I mean, he goes to travel across to find the, the, the deer god or the great forest spirit to see if he can be cured of his ailments. Um, and then from there, he, he starts to learn more about that that idea of man and nature coexisting uh, so comparing his i guess not his um indifference to the situation but him like accepting like that this is this is just the nature no pun intended the nature of the world um for these things to happen and for there to be sort sort of compromise contrasting that with like lady aboshi and what she's trying to do with building up her ironworks or with San and her vengeance towards what the humans are doing to nature. Yeah, he's like this third party looking from the outside in. So he's able to take a very level-headed approach to everything, a level-headed view on everything because he can see both sides of the coin. He can he can understand the motivations from both sides in this, like, not a war necessarily, but both parties that are in this scuffle, I guess you could call it. And it's interesting because you have San who refuses to acknowledge or accept the fact that she is in fact human because she can't accept that she's the same as the humans who are destroying the forest and hunting the creatures for their own gain. Um, but she, I don't know, like, I, I kind of find her stance interesting because she could be the bridge to link everyone together versus Ashtaka. She could be the one to say, well, I was raised by the wolves and I've lived among nature, but I am inherently human and therefore I can you know, be that liaison to come to an agreement. She's just all in on uh, you know, destroying humans and what the, the forest creatures are saying that humans need to be destroyed because they're greedy um, and they're, they're ruining everything for the rest of the world. I wonder if that might be part of her, like holding some sort of grudge against her parents. Um, I think, I don't remember if this was really touched upon in the film about her backstory where she was abandoned in the forest by her parents because they were off doing terrible things. I, I don't I don't know exactly what happened, but they were impeding upon nature and then nature fought back in a way, I guess with the wolves and that they offered her as this sort of sacrifice. Um, so maybe the sense that humans had abandoned her and like thankfully nature had accepted her, that that's what also fuels her hatred towards Lady Aboshi or I guess towards humanity. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't have any real connection to humanity other than the fact that she is human herself. I could see why she sides only with nature and doesn't want to see anything from the side of the, the humans. I guess that leads to another interesting thing about this film. And one thing that I appreciate is that there is no straightforward protagonist or antagonist in this story. I know I, I just said that Astaka could be considered the protagonist, but uh, this idea of like the duality of man or the duality of character, um, I think it's a much more mature take in a story that this Ghibli film is tackling. Um, and I don't know if this is like a reflection of the times in which the film was released where headlines were just rampant with talk of war, destruction, and famine among these times of peace. But again, the, the fact that you can't necessarily label San or Lady Aboshi or the the nature deities or the humans that work in the Iron Town 
you can't necessarily label them good or bad because they each have their pros and cons. I know that there's when the ironworks are introduced, uh, you see a contrast in color between the surrounding nature where it's lush and green and verdant, but then you have the ironworks fortress, which have these much more muted or muddy or brown colors. And so immediately I was thinking, oh, well, well, there's your antagonist. It, it's it's humans and what they're doing to the environment. But as you learn more about the Iron Town and about Lady Eboshi, you learn that she's been taking in these workers and these employees out of very sorrowful situations, especially the scene where it shows the lepers that are working on the firearms to protect the, the ironworks, or it's the women who are working to create the iron, um, how they came from unfortunate circumstances. And it's from there, you can see like Lady Eboshi is very kind-hearted. It's just that when it comes to nature, she becomes a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, I agree. I appreciate that the characters fall within this gray area. I was going to use Eboshi as the, the exact uh, perfect example, whereas you mentioned like to certain characters, she may seem evil and greedy, but to other characters, she's a hero and someone who has shown kindness and compassion when society has cast them away. Um, but with that said, I think that she also evokes greed um, mm-hmm. as a theme in this movie. Like, I feel like, yeah, humanity seems a little bit more greedy in this sense, but I feel like nature can also be a bit greedy in its desire to destroy all humans. Again, instead of trying to find that middle ground, that coexistence that Ashtaka is striving for. So I think both sides can be argued as being greedy. Now, with all that said, because I know you're talking about, you know, does this movie have a main character or a protagonist? Do you think the title of the movie is a bit misleading? Because when I first mm. started watching this, I, I didn't even realize that Princess Mononoke wasn't San's actual name. It was just what she was referred as um, and that they don't really say it very often in the movie anyway. But I also don't think that the movie's about her. I, I don't think it's about mm-hmm. her at all. If anything, I would say Ashtaka has more of a prominent role than San does. Now, she she definitely has an important role. Don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting her role in this entire story. But I do feel that Ashtaka plays a greater role than she does. And that the actual story is about the humans versus nature, not about Princess Mononoke. Yeah, I, I agree. Like you said, I think we're seeing everything in this film basically through Ashitaka's eyes rather than through, quote-unquote, Princess Mononoke. Um, so in that sense, I think, yeah, the title's misleading because it, it's more of like, um, I guess, like a tale of two cities, again, team, team human versus team nature rather than following San's story specifically. Um, but... Yeah, maybe maybe the ambig- I have to maybe I should look up like why the the movie was titled as such, uh, but maybe like the ambiguity of the title only reinforces the the ambiguity of who in these situations are good or bad. The only thing I could think of is maybe it's titled Princess Mononoke because she again represents what could be like nature and humanity coexisting, mm, right? Um. But even then, I feel like she's she's a pivotal character for Ashitaka's journey. But is she the driving force behind what he's doing, what he's striving for? No, because what he's striving for is peaceful coexistence between humanity and nature. She's just a, I hate not, not just a, but she is a partner um, that he can work with to achieve that. Like when they actually get together and start working together after he carries her out of the iron town when she was battling uh lady aboshi i feel like at that point they partner up and they're together they're able to achieve ashitaka's desire of peaceful coexistence um but before that i mean there's a lot that happens before she's even really truly introduced into the story yeah i guess to talk more about the the nature side i know we've we've touched upon lady aboshi representing human greed and maybe even uh that monk one who kind of sets Ashitaka. Jigo or something like that? Yeah, Jiko. Also, kind of like a wild card where he is only in this to seek his own, like, self-gain. But I guess commenting on, like, the nature side, whenever, like, I think of nature, obviously I think, like, peace and and serenity. 
But that's not necessarily the case with a lot of these forest deities. If you like, maybe the, the I was about to call them Koroks, but that's the <laughs> Legend of Zelda creatures, right? Uh, Kodama here, like they're the ones who are probably the most peaceful. Uh, and doing a little bit of research on them, the Kodama are just supposed to be representative of the forest of nature being in good health. And a little piece of trivia is that, you know, after the great forest spirit purges the the land surrounding the ironworks, um, like a lot of the Kodama are killed. But then at the end of the film, you see that one Kodama appear. Apparently, that Kodama later turns into Totoro. What? Yeah. Interesting. Which I guess kind of makes sense because this film takes place in like the feudal era of Japan and Totoro takes place in the quote unquote modern day, but I think it was the late eighties when the film came out. So I figured he, I think that movie says he's been around for hundreds of years. And so, yeah, I guess that kind of makes this a, a shared universe, a shared Ghibli universe in that sense. But uh, going back, like, yeah, the Kodama, I think are the most peaceful creatures that we see in nature. But you look at, Moro and the wolf deities or Okoto and the boar deities or even those like silhouette creatures that ended up being gorillas. Yeah. Uh, they don't seem like peaceful creatures of nature at all. Like they, I mean, I, they have reason to be aggressive. It's because they feel like the humans are encroaching upon their land. But there's even infighting in between them. Um, and that's... I didn't even mention the great four spirit itself. Um, first off, it's it's look like its facial features could be nightmare fuel. It's ugly. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the daytime one, right? Because it changes into a night walker at night. Yeah. The daytime version is freaky looking. When it showed up on screen, I was like, ew. <laughs> yeah, it's like again the stuff of nightmares. Um, but again, you you'd expect that to be such a, a graceful uh, force of nature. But then you see, you know, even though it heals Ashitaka, partially heals him of his arm wound. Uh, one thing I noticed, like every step that it took in its realm, it would kind of grow, but then decay the nature around him. Um, so it's like it's neither a good nor evil thing. I think it's kind of representing itself as like the god of life and death. Uh, but again, just highlighting that as... You know, as important as nature is, in certain respects, um, it can be ferocious and fearsome, much as the humans have been. I found the whole ending part with the Nightwalker version of the forest spirit interesting because it gets its head chopped off and then it just destroys, it goes apeshit and just destroys everything. I don't know if that was to represent, like I kind of took it a couple different ways. Like one interpretation I had was that the um, the destruction at the very end of the movie was like the forest spirit was fed up with all of the fighting and said, you're all dead. Like just we need to mm. wipe this shit clean and start over. None of you deserve to have anything. So you're all gone. Um, the other way I interpreted it was that the the Nightwalker version um, is more inherently about death versus the daytime forest spirit. Because again, I, I know that it grew and then decayed plant life, but it mm -hmm. also in the daytime version <laughs> was what had healed Ashtaka. So maybe by angering it, it just kind of like went crazy because it didn't have a head and like, what the hell is it going to do now? I don't mm -hmm. know. I just, it was kind of confusing to me, um, but I could see where Miyazaki was going with it. Like if we can't find a way to peacefully coexist, nobody gets anything because everything will be destroyed. Yeah, I think that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about like the duality of these characters. Again, nature here um, is peaceful when it can be, but a representative of the night walker or the, the headless forest spirit, it can be a destructive force as well. I guess a way that I can interpret it um, is with uh, the headless spirit going apeshit is like it, representing a a natural disaster in our world where it can cause so much chaos, so much mayhem, but then 
I guess coming out of that, there is that trank that sense of tranquility. Um, where at the end of this film, it's like a, a time to reflect and rebuild. Uh, so I think that's also something that maybe I think Miyazaki was trying to achieve with the climax. Yeah, I could see that. Like nature destroys indiscriminately. Yeah, it just everything gets wiped out. Whatever's there, it all gets it gets impacted in some way. So I could see that also being. Um, another way it was the ending was representing that ultimate demise or that ultimate um, outcome if things don't change. I guess one question I had um, was around the love story between San and Ashitaka. What were your thoughts mm. on that? Um, yeah, I, I know the, the catalyst for San starting to be friendlier towards Ashitaka is because um, he called her beautiful. Yeah. But I didn't really get any more romantic feelings between them as the story went along. It was more so that they had just become close friends by the end of the film because he promises that um, he'll come visit her in the forest. But I don't think there were any rom- like romantic overtones to that. Yeah, it's weird because I think they, they it's clear that they love each other and they want to be together by the end of the story, but the love story itself isn't very flushed out. So I I'm a romantic. I can get behind it. I think they're cute. I I ship that whatever. It's great. But I looking at it objectively, I felt like the end of their love story was a bit unsatisfying because we didn't get enough build up. As well as the fact that they're not going to see much of each other because they're going to live apart. Like Ashtaka is going to live in the Iron Town. Mm-hmm. She's going to live in the forest. Like, yeah, I guess they can see each other pretty easily, but it just seems strange. Like, we'll be together, but we're actually going to be apart. And yeah. then also, I didn't really like that Ashtaka gave San the gift that the girl from the All village right. gave to him. Because I looked at this up a little bit, and I think Wikipedia or wherever I looked it up said that that girl was his bride to be. So this is a this was a if that's the case this Damn. this necklace was a parting gift from the person he was to be married to because she knew he she'd never see him again he was like banned from the village because of the curse or whatever and so he then gives that same gift to San as like a token of his own love for her and I'm like that's kind of whack like you couldn't have found like a different mm-hmm. gift <laughs> you had to regift the gift that you got from your bride to be I don't know that was that was a bit strange to me yeah it wasn't his to give really yeah um, <laughs> although I think he I I read somewhere that he ended up having to be kicked out of his tribe like the, the Amishi peoples um like their settlement I think as a result of him interfering with that possessed boar. Yeah, they, that's what they established in the beginning. Like the the tribe leader or whatever said, unfortunately, you have to go. Like you mm-hmm. you have to set out on this journey. You can save yourself, but you also can't come back. Yeah. And so I guess in that sense, he had no connection anymore with, with his bride-to-be or any of the, the people that he grew up with. But yeah, it's just, it's just weird. It's like giving away... Uh, a keepsake from like a, a deceased relative and then regifting that for someone's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you say is your favorite character out of the film? I I'd, I'd say it's Ashitaka. Um I know this is completely unrelated, but he sort of reminds me of Tom Branson from is that his name from Downton Abbey? Uh, oh, I was yeah. like, who? <laughs> the, I, I, yeah, the Irish character who serves on the staff. Yeah. Uh, because he also acts as this sort of bridge between uh, the, the the wealthy family that lives in Downton Abbey and then the the servants that cater to them. Um, I think Ataka also serves as that gap um, to show how these two different forces can coexist. Uh, so yeah, I would I would say Ashitaka. I always like that sort of compromiser or that that moderator that lives in between the black and white to show that you know there's a gray that exists where where people can come together. Who would you say is your favorite character in the film? Mine is the same. I I love Ashitaka. I love everything about him. Um, He's one of the only ones, again, who's looking for a peaceful resolution and a way for humans and nature to live in harmony and and, in respect of one another. And um, 
when it comes to the way he kind of helps the story move along, like I feel like a lot of things would not have panned out the way they did if it weren't for him. And I like that he has his doubts about both sides at various times, but everything that he looks at as that third party perspective is pretty balanced between the human mm-hmm. side and the nature side. Um, even when Iboshi and San are fighting in the Iron Town, he still doesn't really take a side. He's trying to stop both of them so that neither of them gets badly injured and ends up what knocking both of them out when they're fighting in that yeah. like circle of people and then picks both of them up. So I, I like that he is able to stay as this like neutral party, but not in an annoying way where he's just trying to stay out of it and keep his hands clean. Mm-hmm. He's getting his hands dirty. He's doing whatever it takes to help these two sides, again, reach that peaceful resolution. Yeah, he wants to see the best of both worlds. Like and I, honestly, Hannah Montana. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, he's the most fleshed out character in this entire film. He has like a pretty complete backstory. He has a, a, a well-rounded motivation. Like there's parts of me that wants to know more about San. Like I get they kind of quickly drop that she was abandoned and then taken on, taken under the wings of, of the wolves and raised by them and all that. And Lady Oboshi, for example, like I feel like we know a lot about her her current motivations but like who is she where did she come from why does she want to have this like giant empire of iron or whatever so it's nice that ashtaka feels like a complete character and we get to see him from beginning to end of story yeah and he's never like corrupted i guess by anything that happens like he's he's observing uh the good and the bad in both nature and in humans and I, I didn't mention this, but also, you know, I, I thought that was like an irony in Lady Oboshi, like agreeing to gift the emperor with the great forest spirit's head, but then the empress, emperor decides to invade her iron town and take it for his own. Yeah, that whole um, thing like confused me. I felt like that was kind of unnecessary to add all that stuff. Yeah, I, I guess looking at, back at it, it's almost like a parallel with how the deities in nature had some infighting and then this is sort of the human counterpart with lady aboshi and the empire or the, the shogunate um how again both sides have their good and their bad but ashitaka is just in between observing everything yeah it's a good point i didn't think about it like that that it serves as the parallel of infighting on the human side, but I think it just came out of nowhere. And it's, it's like suddenly, oh, by the way, the emperor wants all this stuff and the emperor wants the head of the forest de- deity or the forest god. I would have almost been more convinced if it was just Jiko trying to steal the head of the forest god because there was a, a way to get rich quick. Like, mm. the, you know, he could sell it on the black market or sell it to the highest bidder or something like that would have felt more believable than saying, oh, the emperor has tasked me with getting this head because the I think the emperor thought that it would bring him immortality. Yeah. Like, it all just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and maybe it's just a plot device to serve as, like you said, the parallel of infighting on the human side. But it just, I don't know, just like the, the why was missing for me. Yeah, I guess uh, since we're talking about uh, um, some of our gripes with the film... I think the the major one for me is that it feels a little longer than it needs to be. Uh, although there are, I have two pieces of trivia related to this. Um, I think when the now disgraced American film producer Harvey Weinstein uh, talked to Miyazaki about adapting this for an American audience, he wanted the film to be cut shorter. But then Miyazaki was so angry at his request that he stormed out of the meeting. And I think Studio Ghibli ended up mailing Weinstein uh, a katana to his office that said, I think it was uh, engraved with no cuts on the blade. Uh (laughs) And so with that kind of veiled threat, I think Weinstein agreed not to cut the film and just present it as it is. Um, And another tidbit is that at a film festival Miyazaki made the comment um, with this film I intentionally threw out all the rules of entertainment movie movie making which is why it will take some time for a true evaluation of this film to emerge I hope you will enjoy all of the ridiculously long two hours and 13 minutes yeah I could see some parts 
like maybe being shortened like Ashtaka's the beginning of his journey when he meets up with Jiko unexpectedly like some of that was like okay I get it but it also was it served to to kind of help lay the groundwork for Ashtaka to make it from point A to point B point A being his home village point B being you know the iron town like he didn't know where he needed to go on this journey so meeting up with Jiko at least helped with that but parts of it felt a little bit drawn out I think that maybe that part could have been shortened, but you know, it, it, ultimately it's fine the way it is. Yeah, and I think this is just something I noticed in Ghibli movies is that there are a lot of just rising and falling actions throughout that you're not sure where the climax is going to be, and then you, I mean, there's a clear cut climax with this and with the final battle, but I think it's just it's it's quite a journey to get again from point A to point B, but I, I see what you mean by establishing the the things that Ashitaka has to go through uh, before he can reach that final battle and come to an understanding of what this world needs. And in terms of gripes, I think that my one biggest gripe with the movie um, is probably a gripe that I have across Studio Ghibli films, which is that often the why, the quote-unquote why, is missing or very obscure, which makes a lot of the things that happen in these films feel like they're just happening versus things happening to create a cohesive story. I would say Princess Mononoke, though, is um, one of the best in terms of like a clear plot line for a Studio Ghibli film, but there are still moments that weren't explained and we just have to accept are a thing. Like, again, the whole situation with the Emperor or there's that part where Moro's head suddenly comes alive and chomps off Eboshi's arm. How did that happen? <laughs> Why did that happen? Um, Oregon, Eboshi's motivations for wanting to expand her Iron Empire weren't super, super clear. And there's still that gray area of why the forest god destroyed everything towards the end of the film, although we do have our theories on, on why that actually happened. So I would say there are points in the film where I felt like, again, things were quote-unquote just happening versus happening to help build a cohesive story just because the why sometimes is missing. I guess the only thing egregious for me in that sense is that Lady Eboshi and Jiko just give up their selfish ways at the end, like just like that. <laughs> you know yeah, probably because I mean? having the entire world destroyed by the forest god scared the shit out of them. Yeah, and I feel like her getting her arm, Lady Eboshi getting her arm cut off was also like a wake up moment, but it was just kind of like, uh, just with a stamp of the finger, they're like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll stop being so terrible. I feel like the humans got got it way less worse than nature like nature yeah. lost all of the boars and all of like the leaders like moro and okoto those those fuckers die <laughs> like like yeah. nature got it way worse the only thing really that happened on the human side the only tragic loss was oboshi's arm yeah that's true yeah no other casualties not even like the employees that they highlighted at the ironworks yeah <laughs> In terms of animation and music, I do want to touch on this really quick. Um, Animation-wise, I actually don't have much to say other than it's a Studio Ghibli film. It looks beautiful. The animation is clean, especially for a movie that came out in 1997. Like, it looks amazing. Um, But it has that same animation style um, and and the way that the characters, like the the character designs, it, it all is, you know, very evocative of the type of style that studio ghibli has created for itself i don't know if you have any comments on animation yeah i I know i commented on the backgrounds uh earlier uh just uh, clean as usual uh work from ghibli i think one thing that stood out with princess mononoke is especially with the possessed boar in the beginning and i think there are a couple instances later on um the use of cgi and 3d rendering to create those like demonic little writhing pieces of flesh um at first it was like oh that's kind of kind of odd but then you have to think about this sort of advancement in animation at the time this film was released and you have to say like it's it's pretty impressive what they did here to combine that 3d element with the 2d elements of this film and in terms of music i 
this is typical of me. I don't always catch the music in, in everything that I watch. Like usually music for me has to be very distinct for my tastes in order for me to remember it. I don't remember a ton about the music, but I know earlier you were replaying some of the theme songs and it, it is beautiful. I mean, it's just beautiful and whimsical and grand and the strings are doing work in some of these pieces. Like mm -hmm. it, it is really, really nice to listen to. But of course for me, I actually have to sit and listen to it. I didn't notice it during the film. Yeah, it's uh, the music is composed by longtime collaborator with Miyazaki, uh, Joe Hisaishi. Um, the two themes that I, that stuck out to me were the ones for uh, Princess Mononoke, or for San herself, and for Ashitaka. Uh, yeah, th there are strings in these pieces as per, as per usual, so it makes the score of the film sound very majestic. Uh, but for these two themes in particular. With Princess Mononoke's theme, I like that there's that added flute to it that makes it feel more in tune with like nature or being part of like that environmental landscape. And with Ashitaka's theme, uh, to kind of harken back to his roots in the Emishi people, uh, I believe it's an erhu that is being used, like the... Um, stringed instrument that's used in like a lot of Asian music uh, to kind of evoke that sort of tribal feeling, that sort of folkloric feeling um, to also, again, complement the strings and all the normal orchestral sounds that make Joe Saishi's soundtracks in Ghibli films so beautiful. And that leads us to our final thoughts for Princess Mononoke. So how many, is that a deer god? Or is that a donkey gods out of 10 would you give this film? I would give it an 8.5 out of 10. I think that despite some of the gripes that I mentioned earlier, which span across all Studio Ghibli films, I think this is by far one of the best Studio Ghibli films we've seen so far, knowing that we haven't seen some other important ones like Howl's Moving Castle um, and Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. But this has a powerful message that it conveys about the effects humans can have on nature, as well as the effects that nature can have on humanity, um, and conveying that there is a way for humans and nature to peacefully coexist. So it's it's a it's a good lesson to be you know learned or, or taken away from this film. And Ashitaka is a great character because he shows us that peace is always an option, no matter how angry the opposing sides are with each other. Um, if you keep striving for that, it can eventually be obtained. And I really did love the um, the relationship that Ashitaka has with San. Again, while the romance was slightly forced or underdeveloped, I still got behind it and rooted for them. Um, and I think that Ashitaka has the kindest heart. And despite moments where his desire for peace seems futile, he never gives up and eventually that dream is realized. So there is a lot of inspiration even in a movie like this, which can be a little more mature as far as like the audience it's meant for and a little darker than some of the other Studio Ghibli films. Like if you compare this to My Neighbor Totoro, I mean, they're, they're night and day, but it's still a really, really good film. What about you? I would give this film an 8 out of 10. It's the grittiest and maturest Ghibli film that I've seen to date, and it's one where it doesn't give me those typical warm, fuzzy feelings by the end of it, but it is nonetheless still as captivating and as provocative as films like My Neighbor Totoro or Spirited Away in a different and more environmentally friendly sense. Um, it was particularly interesting that the film's messaging suggests that there is no clear-cut answer in how mankind can live harmoniously with nature, because life as we know it isn't always so black and white, but through Ashitaka's and San's intertwined story is an equally important message to not let the imbalance last as a be-all, end-all, but as a chance for opposing forces to still work together and work towards a respectful outcome that will reap the most benefits for all sides, even if the pace of the film's storytelling takes longer than it needs to get to that point. Um, these are themes that may just go over a young child's head who is more enamored with the impressive Ghibli visuals and the cutesy Kodamas, but for older folks like myself, I think it makes for a cinematic experience that inspires one to figure out how they want to positively impact the world without willingly contributing to its ruin. 
And now we can officially check off Princess Mononoke from our Studio Ghibli list. I think another or a great film for us to review next from Studio Ghibli would probably be Howl's Moving Castle. So if any of you guys are interested in hearing us review that movie, reach out and let us know. But as always, thank you for tuning in and we appreciate your support. Subscribe to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us. Follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series, on Twitter at Strictly Series, and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash thestrictlyseries. And tune into Strictly JoJo, our other podcast dedicated to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.